Now, for this morning, we are kicking off a brand new series called The Ancient Chaos, where, hold your breath, we are talking for the next few weeks about sin and shortcomings. Um, And I know off the cuff, that probably sounds really heavy and weighty, and like, my gosh, I picked the wrong Sunday to come to young adults, but... Uh, I'm going to try my best to make this topic uh, light, to make it palatable, but at the same time, to make it uh, true to the Holy Scriptures and what the Bible says about sin and our fallen condition. And so this morning, uh, we're going to kick this morning off and this series off, and we're going to title this morning's message, A Necessary Study. And we're just going to look this morning at why it's important to uh, look at the theology of sin in the first place and to really... Uh, give and devote some time and attention to this greater topic of sin and shortcomings. And before we do that, some of you are a little jittery and a little nervous. Let's pray. All right, and let's center ourselves again before the Lord. And I just want to invite you here, um, regardless of what your weekend has looked like, you know, we can either find ourselves stumbling into these spaces just on fumes and tired and worn down, Or we can do the exact opposite. We can find ourselves uh, blowing into these spaces, fifth gear, full throttle, busy, busy, busy. And the invitation right now is just to stop and to sit and to let every part of yourself come under the reign of Jesus Christ again. Every Every drifting emotion, every rogue attitude that may say that you're not enough, every part of your soul deep, dark, that may feel like the Lord has walked away from you and he's far from you. Come back to intimacy to the Lord. Come back under the reign of his lordship. Come back to the kingdom this morning. And Lord, we say, here we are. We pray the prayer of Samuel. Speak, your servant is listening. We come to gorge on breakfast, yes. We come to see our friends, yes. We come um, for a good morning, yes. But we come for you. God, we're gathered here for you. We've sacrificed sleep for you. We've made the trip out for you. And Holy Spirit, if you're not here, then these are just cute words. And if you're not here, then this is a cute gathering. But if you're here this morning, then things can change. Attitudes can shift. Sin and darkness can be called into light. Parts of our lives that are broken can begin to be mended. We have the audacity to believe these things. And so we ask you, Holy Spirit, would you come and would you teach us? And as we devote ourselves to your scriptures, and as we sit under them, and as we discuss them, um, would you knit our hearts together and would you reunite our hearts to yours? And would we be a people who say yes to all that you have for us? Yes to obedience, yes to life, yes to hope and peace and joy in the way of the kingdom. We say yes. And we ask that as we study your scriptures, you would teach us and instruct us according to the way that you see fit. Let the scriptures sing this morning. Let there be resonance. Let there just be uh, a reverberation and beautiful orchestral noise of your scriptures. Let them sing in our souls. Let them sing amidst us today. And we pray that you would guide us, and would you be present in our study. And we pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, amen. Why are we talking about sin, bro? 
Why can't we talk about something comfier? Why can't we maybe give something? Why can't we talk about revelation? Why can't we talk about, you know, grace, all of that? Well, I think when it comes to sin and when it comes to studying sin, it's kind of like eating our vegetables. Uh, And I'm in the thick of this season right now, not for myself, because I'm a carnivorous beast and I don't deal with that rabbit food. But uh, we got we got three boys who were trying to teach to eat their vegetables. Carrots, just eat a dang baby carrots. Smother it in ranch, dip it into whatever you need to do. Like, just eat it. Eat broccoli, eat something healthy. And I know it may seem a bit hypocritical that I'm a carnivorous animal and I'm trying to teach my kids to eat vegetables. I do eat vegetables. But we're in this phase with our kids where we're just trying to teach them that vegetables are uh, a vital part of the diet. And it's something that though may not taste great and though may not come naturally even to our palate, uh, it's something that needs to be ingested and it's something worthwhile. Well, I think the study of sin is, is similar. I think that we can hone in very easily on the fun stuff, the stuff that's sweet, the stuff that tickles the ears, the stuff that we like to nuance. Oh, what did Paul mean when he said this? And what does John mean in Revelation? Could he, could he be post-tribulation? Is he pre-tribulation? You know, uh, premillennialism. We can just, we can dwell on these things that are fun to talk about, and yet the issue of sin is just not real fun. And when it comes to shining a light on a darker issue, I think we can recoil a little bit. And we can uh, tend to just avoid the topic altogether. And yet sin is like eating the vegetables. Uh, And to take it a step further, if we do not fully come to grips with sin, and if we do not fully understand sin, then the gospel itself cannot truly make sense. We can't have the good news and the gospel and the liberation that was Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected without taking on the full weight of our depravity. Uh, We can say it this way, that we cannot understand the depths of God's grace unless we understand the depravity of our sinful condition. It just can't happen. Grace does not happen in a vacuum. Liberation does not happen in a vacuum. Liberation from what? Grace for what? It's only in understanding our sinful condition uh, and our depravity that we can truly understand the depths of God's grace. Uh, 1 John 3, 1, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we are called what? Children of God. And that is what we are. This is the grace that's been given to us. And before we come to this grace and before we can fully receive it in all of its depth and goodness and glory, we have to at least understand first that we are flawed, that we are fractured, that we are depraved in the deepest parts of our condition. And I think if we're not careful, when sin is relegated to that which is not that bad, Um, then we can maybe tend to think that the answer is within ourselves. And especially in the society in which we live, when we're uh, uh, absolutely filled and maxed out with messages of humanism, that the answer's in yourself, bro. Girl, you got this. Just like it's it's self-actualization. You thrive and you flourish when you find... Uh, the, the highest echelon of your being. Well, okay, how's that working out for you, by the way? If humanism really held up 
to uh, a robust and worthwhile worldview, then I think we wouldn't see uh, the sin and the violence and the utter depravity that we see in our world today because there would be goodness. There would be, where there would be more people finding the, the highest echelon of who they are and their purest being. It just doesn't hold up. And we can go the way of humanism if we're not careful. If we don't stare sin in the face and realize that I am utterly depraved and fractured and flawed outside of the grace of Jesus, then we can believe uh, that the answer is within ourselves. And humanism, by the way, is the exact opposite of the gospel. Where humanism says, we got this, the answer is within ourselves. The gospel says, "I, I am nothing and Jesus is everything. I have nothing to bring to the table. I am utterly bankrupt. And yet in God's great grace and goodness, Jesus is enough. Um, Said another way, we can say that a worldview that views sin as not that bad renders the cross as not that necessary. And we uh, absolutely squeeze the goodness and the beauty and the wonder of Calvary out if we view our sin as not that bad. Because in order for Jesus to be the savior that he was, he had to come in the context of utter depravity. In order for him to truly be the life-giving, liberating savior, uh, the people that he came to save had to be saved from something. Sin, absolutely interwoven into the fabric of our being. This is the gospel, Jesus coming in that. And before we really uh, can take on the, the uh, beauty of it, we have to come to grips with our sin and our depravity. And it's interesting, the Old and New Testament writers don't uh, shy away from the issue of sin. In fact, we see the Old and New Testament writers throughout Scripture go to great lengths to let us know that sin is, in fact, interwoven into the fabric of our being and that we are utterly deprived and depraved and in need of a Savior. We see this in Isaiah 64, verse 6, where Isaiah says, We all have become like one who is unclean, and our righteous deeds, you guys, our righteous deeds— The best stuff that we can bring to the table. Lord, here's what I got. Here you go. It's like a polluted garment. It's filthy rags. It's disgusting. It reeks. Even our righteousness. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Isaiah was on to something. That we have nothing in and of ourselves to bring to the table. Paul, later in Romans 7 Uh, verse 21, uh, he talks about this as well. He talks about this tension between his desire to be good and yet how his goodness is not enough, that it always uh, insidiously turns on him and makes him do things he does not desire to do. A familiar passage of scripture, he says, so I find it to be a law that when I do right, evil is close at hand. For I delight in the law of God. I really do. In my inner being, I want to do what's right. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Can anybody relate to this? Wanting to do the right thing. Longing for righteousness. Longing Uh, to be obedient, and yet somehow not measuring up. By your silence, I'm assuming yes. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Not myself. 
But thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he says later, a few verses later in in chapter 8, verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Paul is saying, Isaiah is saying, the greater whole of Scripture itself is saying that we have absolutely nothing to bring to the table. That sometimes we can kind of approach God like, yeah, I got it together and I feel like things are pretty good. And though, of course, there's this area of my life that's absolutely flawed and fractured and broken, I I feel like I'm an overall good person. Isaiah would say, try again. Paul would say, you're off there. Because we in and of ourselves have absolutely nothing. We're abysmally depraved from goodness. And that's not to say that we can't do a good work here and there and we can't extend charity here and there, but it's swallowed up in a uh, depraved condition that Paul in the greater uh, narrative of Scripture is teaching. And so when it comes to sin, why don't we like to talk about this? If sin and the study of sin and understanding sin is really uh, the starting point for us understanding the depths of the gospel. And that's not to say that we can't really understand uh, who Jesus was and some of the stuff that he did without this deep understanding of our sin. But if we are going to say yes and receive and be partakers in the deep trans- uh, transformative work of the gospel, then we must come to a place to where we absolutely say, Lord, I am in need of a savior. And until we do that, and until we really come to grips with that, there will always be this striving in our lives. Oh, if I could just do this, if I could just reach, if I could just do a little bit more, if I could just go to church a little bit more, then I will be loved. But instead, the gospel is emptying. The gospel is saying, in and of myself, I have nothing and I must die so that Christ may live. So if this is the case, then why is this so hard to talk about? Why do we struggle with giving attention to sin? Why are we uncomfortable with talking about our personal depravity and the greater depravity of humanity? Well, I think sometimes uh, it's just simply uncomfortable. I think it doesn't feel good. I think we don't like it. I I think it leaves a bad taste in our mouth. I think we like to get to the meaty stuff and the stuff that feels better when it comes to theology. But um, you know, there's another narrative at work. I think, I think also we may love control of our lives. And we may like to think that, yeah, the boogeyman's in the closet or under the bed, but as long as I don't see him and as long as sh- I shut my eyes and shut my ears, he's going to go away. But the fact is that until we come face to face with our sin, there's disorientation and there's misunderstanding of what the gospel is. And I think if we're not careful especially in the church sphere, um, we can avoid it out of a notion that, well, an assumption that says, well, we, we don't really need to talk about sin because it was dealt with on Calvary. Like we, uh, it, it's, it's a non-issue at this point. Jesus dealt with it, and so I, I think we're good. Um, but if that were the case, um, then, uh, then people would be sinless when they received salvation, Um, If sin is a non-issue now, then the scriptures wouldn't be filled with warnings to keep persevering in the faith and to avoid sin. Um, Because we can see, was sin effectively dealt with on Calvary? Yes, right? A resounding yes, I hope. That's That's a central message of the gospel. But does that mean that the effects of sin and the grip of sin uh, are fully released on our lives on this side of eternity? No. 
right? And again, that's an axiomatic truth. All you have to do is just look at our lives and, and point to any number of brokenness um, to, in order to justify that. If that were the case, then we wouldn't hear about um, these tragic stories of pastors and their moral failures. If sin all of a sudden is a non-issue and we just don't have to worry about it anymore because of Calvary, uh, then we wouldn't be dealing with uh, this broken and fractured relationship because uh, a fellow believer is talking bad about us behind our back. Uh, If sin is a non-issue, then we wouldn't have that slow, simmering anger at Starbucks when they're taking 15 minutes to brew your blonde roast. I mean, come on, it's just a pour-over. Why is it taking 15 minutes for a pour-over and that slow, simmering anger? Judging by your chuckles, I'm assuming that you guys know that feeling. Oh, what is taking so long? It's a freaking panini. Come on. Sin was dealt with on Calvary. But that does not mean that we don't still feel the effects of sin, even as believers. And it's only in the new heavens and the new earth, where God wipes away every tear from every eye, where God uh, brings down heaven to earth and where we live with Christ forever. And when the fullness of the gospel and the fullness of Calvary and the fullness of kingdom life is realized, that sin will be a non-issue. But until then, we are giving uh, and, and given these uh, testimonies in Scripture to hold fast, to be careful, to watch out, to keep our eyes open, and to be sober and alert because sin is still at work in our bodies. We see uh, the great tension of the New Testament. We can kind of summarize it this way. We have it right here on the screen. The great tension of the New Testament is essentially sin was conquered on Calvary, but still at work in your mortal bodies. This tension that, yes, Jesus took care of it, and yes, sin was nailed to the cross, and yes, death itself was defeated, and yet, there's still sin at work in our mortal bodies. And the process of sanctification is that purging of sin from the, from the fabric of our very being and allowing the Holy Spirit to rid us of our guilt and our greed and our lust and these things that so cling to us. The great tension, it was dealt with and it was conquered, but still at work in our mortal bodies. And with that then... There's also this great warning that we see in the New Testament. And we can summarize it like this. Be on your guard and walk wisely. If sin was conquered on Calvary and we can receive the grace and the riches and the beautiful testimony of the gospel, yet it's still at work in our mortal bodies, then we must be on guard. The New Testament writers say, be on guard, walk wisely, look, be awake. Don't think that you're out of the woods just because you've said yes to Jesus. Because if you're not careful, uh, the enemy and your very sin and flesh can sneak up on you and begin devouring you. Be awake, be alert, be sober. And though we see this tension at work throughout the New Testament, there's one specific passage of Scripture that I think beautifully and succinctly gives language to both this great tension and this great warning. And it's found in Ephesians 5, uh, uh, chapter 3, verses 3 through 17. So we're going to camp out on this for a couple minutes here. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. It'll be on the screen as well. But let's, let's see how this tension and this warning is present In this passage of scripture, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the church of Ephesus. He says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. 
For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. If uh, we can consider, and if we can coast on our lives real quick to camp out on this, if we can just simply coast in our lives of faith, if sin is a non-issue, if it's something that we don't really have to worry about and not at work in our lives anymore, then why would the apostle Paul give this sobering warning? I mean, you're talking to the church here, Paul. You're not talking to non-believers. You're not talking to people who are openly living in sin. You're talking about the church, people who desire righteousness, people who, who desire to walk obediently uh, under the reign of King Jesus. And yet it's to these people, he says, you, you got to know, guys, that, that the people who are immoral, the people who are lustful, and he goes through this whole list, they will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. He offers this warning. And he goes on, verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. We are not talking about a God who doesn't care about sin. We're not talking about a God that says, oh, that's kind of a bummer, but I, yeah, that's fine. Just do, no. Wrath's coming because of this disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time, he reminds them of their salvation experience. At one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and righteous and true. In other words, Paul is saying the substantiation and justification of your identity as people of light is the avoidance of the dark deeds that he just stated before, right? So it's warning and it's a confirmation of identity at the same time. And then he wraps this thing up, this passage in verse 10. He says, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, he says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And he continues, look carefully. This is the challenge and the warning. How you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. We live in this tension. Sin defeated on Calvary. Sin conquered. Christ being greater than sin and the law. Uh, Christ... Uh, fulfilling the work of the law and everything that God gave the people of Israel through in Torah, fulfilling that, conquering sin. And yet at the same time, sin is not totally out of our mortal bodies just yet. There are things that we need to be awake and alert to and keep our eyes open towards and watch out for. Paul saying, don't even, let that not even be an, uh, a talk. Uh, don't even put those words in your mouth, the things that the unbelievers are doing in secret. Those things are going to be exposed. But you, people of God, you whose lives are substantiated and justified, your proximity to Jesus Christ, your life in him, your relationship, that which is proven by your deeds of light, walk as the children of light. But be on your guard, Paul is saying, against these evil works. Put your dukes up because we are still in this fight. And so we're given both this, uh, this tension that we see in Scripture, but also this invitation and warning to walk wisely. 
Paul would say later in Galatians 5.25, to keep in step with the Spirit, just to be sensitive to how we're living, because this thing is still at work in our lives. And so um, we're going to have a time of discussion here in just a couple minutes, but but before that, I want to give us just the lay of the land for uh, the rest of the series here. This is why we're going to talk about sin. The gospel makes sense only when we really uh, give attention to understanding the depravity of our condition. And so throughout this series, we're going to look at um, how sin was present and dealt with in the Old Testament, both under the Torah, that is the law, uh, and in the sacrificial system. We're going to look at what was the sacrificial system all about? What was the Torah and the law all about as a response to sin? We're going to look at Jesus and how he was the fulfillment of Torah and the fulfillment of the sacrificial system. Uh, and then we're going to look at the issue that, that may be a little sticky, but um, what do we do with sin after Calvary? When we fall into sin and when we walk in disobedience, whether willfully or unwillfully, how does that uh, fall in the New Testament? What would the New Testament writers have to say about that? So um, we're going to spend the next like five or six weeks looking at these topics. But um, for now, um, let us be people who are soft and tenderhearted and understand our need for the Savior. Let us be people who understand that even our righteousness is filthy rags, that what we bring to the table is absolutely broken and fractured and flawed and cannot in and of itself be of any worth to God without Jesus Christ. Uh, it's going to be a sweet series ahead, but let's wrap up this morning. We got New Life next um, this afternoon, and so we got to dismiss a little bit early, flip the room, but let's spend the next 15 minutes of our time talking about these two discussion questions here as a response, really nuancing this together. Um, we got two questions. What do you think some of the dangers of misunderstanding sin are when it comes to our personal lives of faith, and why do you think we tend to avoid talking about the issue of sin? Uh, Use these discussions as a guide. Enjoy time at your tables, and we'll pick this thing up in about 10 minutes. All right, you guys. Much, much, much love. Enjoy. Oh, hello, hello. Hey, guys. Sorry to kind of cut this a little bit short this week. Um, With New Life Next being after the second service, Um, we just needed to end today a little bit early so we can tear down. Um, But if you guys could all just stand really fast for me, I'm going to close us in prayer. Lord, we we just thank you. Thank you so much for your sacrifice. Thank you for the work on the cross, for your work on Calvary, Lord. We just take a moment to silence ourselves and to silence our hearts and to just reflect on your sacrifice. We love you so much, and we thank you so much for everything that you've done for us, Father. And um, we just submit to your lordship today, Father pray that um, as we go forth from this place, Jesus, that you would remind us of who you are and the things that you've done for us, that you would be the wind and the breath in our wings this week, Father. We love you. We thank you for today. In Jesus' name, amen.